Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast, and this is C.R. Wiley, and uh, as we let you know every time we, we uh, produce one of these uh, podcasts, we are podcasting from, pugcasting from, the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut, literally less than half a mile from Colt Manufacturing, maker of fine handguns used around the world. Colt won the West, so if you have, if you live west of the Mississippi, send a note of gratitude to us here in West Hartford, Connecticut, for the fact that you live in peace and that you are armed, because we were the ones that gave you the guns. Anyway, here we are today, uh, and uh, let me have uh, my friends introduce themselves, and Tom, why don't you start? I'm Thomas Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, and teach both at Junkley at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. You've already had a couple of pints, we know, Glenn. <laughs> well, not a couple. <laughs> and I'm C.R. Wiley, and I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. And each of us does have a pint in front of us right now. I believe that uh, Tom has an IPA, and uh, Glenn has a Guinness, and I have an IPA. And the reason is the ciders. They they're out of cider. Ugh. It's a tough day for it us, particularly for Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I uh, did say that I was an occasional porter. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, uh, you know, as you know, if you're a regular listener, uh, each of us uh, has a has a turn with the subject of the day, and today is Glenn's day. So Glenn, what are we talking about? Uh, today I'm got, I want to look at the connection between uh, several different things. Hopefully we'll get to them all. Uh, but I want to start with the idea of tyranny. We're, we're in the area of political theology once again. Right. And uh, I, I want to start with, uh, with a look at the idea of tyranny. Now it's kind of an old-fashioned word. Most Americans would associate it with uh, probably the American Revolution, you know, uh, the George III's become a tyrant. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> well, the, the, the word tyrant is actually kind of an interesting one. It's a Greek word, tyrannos. And its original meaning was a king who came into power apart from the normal method of succession. Huh. Hmm. And the, the tyrants, the period of the tyrants, was a period in which the, the kings, who were frankly really abusive, the kings and nobles rode roughshod over the population, connecting it to cult. Once the population became armed, yeah. the, uh, a leader would arise who would overthrow the king and set himself up as the new king, and they were known as tyrants. It was not a negative term originally, it just meant he did not get to that position from the normal rules of succession. Now, the problem was that when he died, his successors frequently were just as corrupt as the old kings. And so they, in turn, got overthrown. And because of this, the term tyrant became a negative in Greek. Originally not so, but, but it, it turns into a negative. It's interesting, if you read the play uh, uh, Oedipus, well, we know it as Oedipus Rex, right. which is Latin for Oedipus the king. Right. In Greek, it's Oedipus Tyrannos, Oedipus the tyrant. Right. And consistently through the play, he is viewed as a good and great king, huh. but he's always referred to as a tyrant until at the very end when his genealogy is revealed, yeah. the name changes from Tyrannos to Basilius, from tyrant to king. Hmm. It's, really, it's really very interesting. It's interesting with that. tyrant and rex, you get Tyrannosaurus rex. But yes. anyway, <laughs> we won't go into that. <laughs> but, but getting, yeah, there you go, that's fun. It's fun. But, getting, but getting back to that, so in that particular, you know, that particular play, uh, what you have is basically someone who's behaving in terms of his station like you would you would expect someone who justly deserves, you know, his office, and then it's revealed. His genealogy is revealed at the end of the of the play, and then it's that's the denouement. That's the the, the resolution that oh, that's why he was a just king. Yeah, because he and, really and, did deserve to be king. And, and a few other problems too. But we're right, we get there. Sure. <laughs> well, from from this, uh, we, we're going to jump ahead a bit to Aristotle. Okay. And in Aristotle's politics, what he did is he said there are basically three kinds of government. Right. Rule by a single individual, rule by committee, you know, small group, and uh, rule by the general populace. 
in one form or another. And each of these has positive and negative versions. So you have a monarchy, which is a good version of rule by a single individual. Hmm. A tyranny is the degenerate version. Right. An aristocracy and an oligarchy is ruled by a committee, you know, a small group. And a republic versus a democracy. Democracy is a degenerate form of government in Aristotle. I believe that. There are all kinds of reasons for that having to do with Athenian history. But so the question then comes up, what, is it possible for a legitimate king to turn into a tyrant? Hmm. Now in the original Greek sense of the word tyrant, that was, those were two separate categories. But by the time you're getting to Aristotle, if a king should stop ruling for the good of the people and instead rule out of self-interest or something like that, he could very easily turn into a tyrant. Right. Okay. Now, when you're getting to the American Revolution, what you see happening there is the Founding Fathers are working off of essentially John Locke, who in turn, as we noted last time, was working off of a bunch of medieval theologians who identified a bunch of pre-political rights that are therefore unalienable. These are rights that God gave us before government was instituted. Uh, for Locke, they were life, liberty, and happiness. And his idea was that government exists to protect those rights, and if the government starts violating them, people have the right to rise up and right. overthrow the government. That's the justification for the Glorious Revolution in England in 1688 and the American Revolution in 1776. Okay, so that, that's the rationale there. Hmm. And the point was that by violating the people's unalienable rights, the king had turned into a tyrant. Right. And because of Protestant resistance theory, which we talked about several episodes ago, once a king becomes a tyrant, you can depose him mm -hmm. and set up a new government. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's tyranny. Now, another way of looking at tyranny is that tyranny occurs not just when the government violates unalienable rights, but more broadly, when the government oversteps its legitimate boundaries, when it begins interfering with things that it has no business doing. Okay. Now, to get to that idea of tyranny, we actually have to go back into early church history. In the Roman Empire, the Roman emperor was in charge of everything. Mm -hmm. okay. um, the basic confession, if you will, in the Roman Empire is Caesar is the Lord, which meant he had comprehensive authority in every area of life. He was a priest. He, oversaw, right. he oversaw the religious, if there was a religious conflict, he was the one who mediated it. Uh, he oversaw the military, the government, everything. Everything was under Caesar's control. Um, and so, by That's such an alien idea to us because we have this uh, notion of the separation of powers. Mm -hmm. Right. And we think that's like natural and like everybody ought to know that. Right. And actually, that in turn, well, that, that comes from a set of currents which we may get into here. The point, though, is that when Christians started making the confession Jesus is Lord, mm -hmm. that was an inescapably political statement. Yeah, that's right. right. Okay. Now, Jump ahead a few hundred years. The church has existed as a persecuted, sporadically persecuted minority, unpopular religion, for 300 years. Constantine comes along. Constantine, while he was a pagan junior emperor up in Trier in Germany, had a guy, a Christian scholar by the name of Lactantius, who taught his kids. And Lactantius, in his institutes, makes the argument, an argument for religious liberty. In which he says, coerced faith is unacceptable to God or the gods. Hmm. Faith that is acceptable must be faith that is given voluntarily. And therefore, you have to allow for religious liberty. What's interesting is that when Constantine issues the Edict of Milan, we talk about this as... The people who don't know what they're talking about say that at this point Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the <laughs> empire. That wouldn't happen until several emperors later. A guy named Theodosius does that. Mm -hmm. But the, the language of the Edict of Milan doesn't just decriminalize Christianity. What it does mm -hmm. is it declares religious liberty. Mm -hmm. It's taken straight after Lactantius. He's using Lactantius' wording. Interesting. So Constantine it legalizes Christianity, right. among other things. What this does... Oh, is it still legal? You know, that's a good question. <laughs> what, what this does, though, 
is it creates a radical change in the nature of governmental power. Sure. Because up to this point, everything was under Caesar. Now you're saying there's this area, specifically the Christian church, which had already demonstrated it didn't need Caesar to function. Hmm. Right, right. But this which area... Which back to an earlier podcast with Tom and the Barman Declaration where sure. we talk about freedom. Right. Yeah. right. So what this does is it creates a zone, the zone of religion, that where the government is not supposed to interfere. Hmm. Right, right. Okay. From there, once you have that, George Weigel is, uh, is really good on this, he points this out. Once you have one something that isn't under the government, mm. it creates the possibility for other somethings right, that right. exist as autonomous areas, each governing its own affairs. Right, autonomous in relationship to the government. Right, right. right. So, family. Yes. Education. Right. Labor. Business. Right. It kind of gets Religion. into kind of Capirian kind of sphere sovereignty. Thought, That's so. where this heads. This right. is the roots of that. Right. What you get, it, it's also called civil society. The idea that there are these right. intermediate institutions that exist between the government and the individual that mediate between the government and the individual. So it's not just the individual okay. under the, right. the... So these are kind of pre-political yeah. kind of things. Yeah, they, they essentially turn into pre-political kinds of organizations. Right. Now... This develops all through the Middle Ages. You actually get this in guilds and things like that. Right, right. Um, now, where, where you brought up the, the question of separation of powers, I'll, I'll back up here a little bit and look at Augustine, mm -hmm. backing up from the Middle Ages. Augustine, and again, we talked about this a, a few episodes ago with, in, in part as part of resistance theory. Augustine says you can't trust anybody with absolute power because of the problem of original sin. Right. So there's nobody in the government that can be entrusted with power, so you must have systems of checks and balances in place. That's the logical implication of it. You must have checks and balances in place, and you must have limited government. Mm -hmm. And as a result, all governments in the Middle Ages were limited and had a kind of separation of powers. Not exactly the one we got, actually very different from the way we did it. Right. But they all had that concept because they understood the effect of sin on government. Right. In essence, what, Arist what uh, Augustine gives us is the ex explanation for how the positive forms of government in Aristotle turn into negatives. Hmm. It's the effect of sin, the effect of right. original yeah. sin. Yeah. That's why a king can turn into a tyrant. Right. So it's now, sort, of, sort of like in the origin of species, you know, Darwin gives us the, you know, the, the you know, natural selection is sort of mm. the mechanism. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's sort of like, because people before that, you know, had the idea of gradual change, yeah. but they didn't understand just what was the mechanism. Right. That would. Now, well, you know, within political arrangements, we have this idea that, Ah, we got food coming. Yes. Happy yes, day. Yes, we do Happy actually day. eat. We don't just drink. <laughs> That's right. right. Thank you. So, uh, but but we ha what we have is is, you know, we have Aristotle and Plato who tell us things go bad, but they can't tell us why things go bad necessarily. Right. But yeah. now Christianity says this is the reason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned Kuiper. Right. Where this, where this idea of um, intermediate institutions, mediating institutions, and things like that ends up leading, it reaches its its most mature expression in Kuiper's idea of sphere sovereignty. Right. And in sphere sovereignty, what it says is that there are certain areas in life that are autonomous, that that are self-governing within their own affairs. The government does kind of sit over these, but the government's job is basically to make sure that the spheres don't overstep their boundaries and that they operate fairly. Okay. Right. But other than that, they're self-governing. Right. Okay. And again, there are these institutions like family, like churches or religions in general, like education, labor, uh, business, all of these kinds of things. Right. Each of them is a sphere that is, in, in Kuiper's vision, each of them is a sphere that's largely autonomous that has a certain responsibilities that it's supposed to take care of. Mm -hmm. um, and government mm -hmm. is just one of those spheres. Right. Okay. So what we, what we have then is a, is a way of thinking that makes totalitarianism impossible. Right. If you follow on the Kuiperian model, totalitarianism is impossible. Okay. So we have two things in place here the idea of tyranny 
and now we have this idea of, of well, sphere sovereignty or a civil society or whatever, these autonomous institutions. I want to add a third uh, topic here, and then we'll tie them together. And that's this issue of, of, well, we would call it freedom today. It's the word we typically use. Um, you know, people are really big on the idea of freedom. It's a great word that's used in scripture and so on. Um, however, if you read the early documents, the founding documents, they don't talk about freedom usually. Because freedom was really primarily a status. Someone was free if they weren't a slave. Okay. So In, founding documents of the United States? The founding documents of the United States, excuse me, yeah. Well, instead of using the word freedom, they used the word liberty. Right. And we, you know, when I was growing up, they told us liberty was just an old-fashioned word for freedom. Right. Mm -hmm. And I believed that mm -hmm. for a while. Right. <laughs> then I started reading more. <laughs> and what I discovered is that the idea of, of liberty is considerably, I mean, radically different from our idea of freedom. Uh, what liberty really points to is the idea to, uh, of uh, living a, a good life in every sense of the word. Um, it's a life that is, um, you know, built around virtue, developing virtue. It's a life in which you can... Uh, expect to be rewarded for your labor. You have the right to work for reward. Um, it's all of these kinds of things. It is actually a positive definition of freedom. Mm. Freedom for something. Freedom right. for something bigger than just your own personal whims. Right. Now, the counter to freedom, the counter, excuse me, to, um, to liberty in, in the 18th century is license. Right. Okay. Mm. License and that's pretty much what people think, think of as freedom today. Exactly. It's license. License mm. essentially means freedom from restraint. Right. Okay. Uh, we have the word, we, again, it's a little bit old-fashioned, but you run into it sometimes, the word licentious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Someone who is licentious is a person who is given to license. Mm. Um, Thank you. Liberty points to self-reward. License points to, well, degradation, frankly, right. morally and otherwise. Now, the thing that's important about this is that, first of all, the founding documents and everybody who wrote political theory through the 19th century all agreed that we had a right to liberty. Mm -hmm. No one believed we had a natural right to license. Right. Which means I'm, that their, their vision of freedom was moral. Their vision of freedom was intrinsically moral. Yeah. And the, the idea that we have a right to license is on the face of it absurd because what it means is that we have a right to, to steal. Mm -hmm. We have a right to commit adultery. We have a right to do all of these other things because that's what moral restraint, eliminating moral restraints means. Yeah. Now, now, the utilitarians, of course, would come in at this point and say, well, we do have the restraint of other people and their rights. Mm -hmm. So they would say that there is a kind of restraint there, but it's still kind of an, it's not moral in the sense that the, the founders thought. Right. Because what the founders were talking about was not so much a bunch of people sort of fighting with each other and, you know, not taking advantage of each other. Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, the, the utilitarian vision is this sort of almost antagonistic vision mm -hmm. where I'm doing my thing and I'm okay doing my thing so long as I don't hurt you, Tom. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Except in utilitarianism, the rights of the individual get completely just destroyed because it's whatever is for the greatest happiness. Well, there you go. And so you ultimately lose lose individual rights. Yeah. But what what the reason why you get to utilitarianism has to do with a broader change in the culture. Mm. And that's a fundamental change in the foundation for ethics. Mm -hmm. Yes. Once you get to the idea of moral relativism, mm -hmm. which really comes up in the 19th century, you get right. echoes, you get hints of it earlier, but 19th century is really where moral relativism takes off. Once you get the idea of moral relativism, it automatically destroys the concept of liberty. Mm. Moral relativism is the death of liberty. 
because liberty is based around the idea of virtue. Right. You must pursue virtue. That's part of liberty. You you pursue self improvement. Uh, work is reward. All of these kinds of things are basic to what liberty means. Right. So this is very much in harmony with sort of you know the the uh, outlook of Jesus when he said, "Truth will make you free." Yes. But you know, today, when people hear the word truth, they think of it as a restraint. Right. Mm -hmm. I can't do what I want. Hmm. So the, the key here is that once moral relativism takes root in a culture, liberty becomes impossible, and all that is left for freedom is license. Mm -hmm. But here is the problem. License automatically leads to tyranny. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it first of all, you know, um, there, you can look at the Apostle Paul, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can look at it that way. But on an even bigger level, politically, right. mm -hmm. let's go back to sphere sovereignty for a mm -hmm. moment. In sphere sovereignty, you have all these autonomous areas, government, business, labor, whatever. The question becomes, what happens if one of the spheres stops functioning right. properly? Right. What happens if it becomes dysfunctional? Mm. Right. Well, what's going to end up happening, we talk about that as the sphere collapsing. Mm -hmm. Once that happens, something else, one of the other spheres has to come in to take over because that sphere had been intended to perform a necessary function. Mm -hmm. So something else has to come in to take over. And we see that in the inner city particularly, in ethnic communities that have ex are sort of further along the trajectory of family dissolution. Mm -hmm. Now we expect schools to do all the moral education of a child. We expect a school to... Except we teach moral relativity so there's no foundation for moral education. Right. Yeah. That's right. Well, yeah. you, know, and, and, you know, as a systematic theologian, I'm always going to pull it back to kind of the doctrinal issue. Right. The, the point you're making is very much in line with what we've been making continuously, that there is a distinct ordering of things and a moral order that goes with it. And so these spheres are representative of, of the, that kind of moral order. And so when that moral order is working in harmony and the different spheres are actually functioning properly, right. they're carrying out things that, that the, the flourishing of the human creature towards its, its, its uh, the, you know, the, the gift, you know, the, cre the creation's fulfillment, but also pointing it towards its transcendent fulfillment are in place. When that's not happening, something else starts to come in and that becomes dominant of it in order to make up for that lack of proper function. And therefore, you create all these different frictions that start to break down the goods of the created order and therefore replace them with um, an alternative, which oftentimes is considered law in the negative sense or limit in the negative sense because it... Yeah, let, let, yeah. Let, let me just point out. When a sphere collapses, what happens? Mm -hmm. Somebody has to step in to take mm -hmm. over. Yeah. Who is that somebody most often? Mm -hmm. Most often it's the government. Mm -hmm. Most often it's the government. Yeah. Law, things like that. Mm -hmm. At, or regulation. In that's our case, right. we usually do it by regulatory agencies because Congress refuses to yeah. do their job. But that's another whole That's another topic. subject for a podcast. It is. <laughs> and referring to the last podcast, it was very similar when what happens when in, in the church, especially when theological doctrine Right. takes the back seat and tolerance takes the front seat. Well, that automatically sets the conditions up for something else to be driving that right. rather than the theological picture. And here you go. It's usually government, politics, um, yep. you know, a certain ethic. Something else fills that vacuum. And, uh, and this is a continued, I think, a continued issue. Right. Something is removed from, from you know, um, being able to perform its created function and right. something else comes in and ends up actually, you know, putting rule in places it didn't need to go or shouldn't have gone. It becomes create, a god, you could say. It becomes, becomes, becomes an yeah. idol. Yeah, there are two, two consequences to this. First of mm -hmm. all, spheres are not equipped to deal with the responsibilities of other spheres. Mm. Right. So when they step in to do this, mm. they do it badly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. right. Okay. Mm -hmm. The An example of that would be... You know, Romanian orphanages. Romanian orphanages, yeah. You know, if those hmm. listeners who aren't familiar with what that refers to is that, you know, in Romania, when the collapse of the communist state occurred, there hmm. were just these orphanages filled with, with children. Hmm. 
because the families within the Romanian society had dis dissolved, and all these kids, these poor kids, were either neglected or abused, mm. or it was just horrendous. Mm. And we're still dealing with the, the repercussions today. In many ways, it, it created a generation of sociopaths. That's exactly right. Because of the lack of proper nurture in the first years of their life. That's right. Okay. The and now we're doing that in America by making women feel like in order to be significant, they have to work in a corporation ex mm. rather than to serve their families and children. Right. Because fam the family sphere is, well, frankly, under attack on a whole lot of different levels. Right. Now, here's the trick. Not only does the government do it badly, or any other sphere stepping in doing it badly, and we can, we can point to other examples. For ex when, when the Roman Empire was in decline in Western Europe, the governmental sphere collapsed, and the church stepped in to take its place. Right, right. And that is going to lead to the entanglements of church and state, which were never the way it should have been. Mm -hmm. right, right. That is going to be the dominant driving force in politics throughout the Middle Ages, and arguably still today. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, you know, we can point to a lot of examples mm. of this, but particularly because in our world right now, it is the government that steps in to do this. Mm -hmm. One of the possible definitions of tyranny is when the government begins stepping into areas in which it is has no legitimate responsibilities. Right, right. Mm. So what ends up happening is the government steps in to fix the family. Mm. Right. The government steps in to dictate how businesses work. Right. The mm. government steps in to control education mm. and dictate how that's supposed to be done. None of these mm -hmm. spheres, which were supposed to be autonomous, are autonomous anymore. Government has become Leviathan. Yeah. We're yeah. in totalitarianism, and then, by definition, tyranny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and a lot of that comes because of the problem of license. Because right. what causes a sphere to collapse? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What causes it to stop functioning the way it's supposed to function? Most often, mm -hmm. it's going to collapse not because of the barbarians at the gates, right. but because the, of the barbarians in, in the gates. Right. What's right. going to happen mm -hmm. is that what, the reason why spheres collapse is that people begin mm -hmm. acting immorally or amorally, seeking right. their own interests, they're pursuing their own desires, their own agendas, things like that, rather than the good of the sphere. Right, and you know, they're, they're basically... Mm. They lose, they, they've lost virtue, so they've lost liberty, so they're in license. So right. Yeah. Yeah, they're taking out more than they're putting in, is another way to kind of put it. Sure. Right? So, you know, I think that this is a, a, a framework for, of thinking, which does a number of things that are great. One is it's faithful to our tradition. Mm. You know, this is something that goes all the way back. Mm -hmm. this, we, we can see the roots mm -hmm. in both Jerusalem and Athens mm -hmm. that inform us. Uh, and it also gives us a sense of, you know, confidence to defy, hmm. you know, those tyrannical authorities. We say, no, you're not going to tell me what to do. Hmm. What you've done is, is something you shouldn't have done. You've overstepped. Mm -hmm. You have boundaries. Yeah. They, see, these authorities mm -hmm. think that they're the only ones who dictate the boundaries, but mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not so. Um, hmm. Now, you know, there are a lot of things I think kind of flood my mind in terms of, you know, where does this go? What are some practical you know, things that we can do to, to sort of live out the implications of this. Um, but anyway, those are the things that can come to my mind. Do you have, do you have any thoughts, Tom? I know I've just interrupted you. Either. No, that's what I was, I was really enjoying that <laughs> buffalo sauce. Sorry, people. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go back to my I was in a different now. sphere. I was in a different sphere in that moment. I don't want to overreach, but <laughs> um, there's a lot, a lot going on here. I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of the central things is that when you, when you start to have a blurring of distinctions, when you start to have a loss of, of these spheres, you, you open up all kinds of things. And I think there has been this strong tendency in the West, which we've discussed for a lot of reasons, that have been trying to, to break, almost use a hammer up against, you know, the, the strong, definitive lines and break them down right. and blur these distinctions. 
And because of that, sort of this relativism has filled, you know, has, has filled this space and this tolerance has filled this space. And what goes on there is, is it, it, it puts all the burden on different spheres and, and I think sometimes individuals right. to have to realize what um, would have otherwise been given to them if they would have had the proper created order and moral order. Another way of putting it, Charles Taylor often talks about the fact that, you know, today we talk about kind of developing and constructing an identity, whereas historically the, idea, the identity would have been given. Mm-hmm. It would have been given because of the cosmic created and moral order. Mm-hmm. And so we may see that as something threatening to our autonomy, but actually it wasn't. It was right. the groundwork for true freedom. That's the sort of what Glenn's onto with virtue and... and right and uh, virtue-oriented towards the fulfillment of our natures rather than in conflict with them. And so, I mean, I think that when, when that starts to break down, all the burden is put on, um, you know, for example, I, I often think of it puts a burden on the individual to sort of construct an identity right. without any reference points other than their subjectivity, which, it, 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 which could almost be what someone like C.S. Lewis would probably call hell. I well, really think. Well, you know, I, I, I yeah, think that actually. In Camus. You, yeah, you're right. You're, yeah. You're, you're, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, I, I think that you know what comes to my mind immediately mm-hmm. is when you have no reference points. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Mm-hmm. You just simply negate the obvious. Yeah. So if you're a woman, the only way to demonstrate your freedom is to declare yourself to be a man. That's right. And vice versa. That's right. It's the only way that you can ex- exercise freedom. And there has been an interesting. Um, way, I guess, in the West, because maybe it's Christian baggage or not, but the way they do it is this sort of moral sense that, well, because X, Y, and Z have failed to live up to a kind of perfect example of an ideal, therefore it has necessitated this alternative kind of um, putting the burden on myself and therefore having to negate, you know, in, in a right. case like that in order to... Reject to everything. Reject everything. Nothing nothing positive that's right. was ever that's present right. in that. It must be completely yeah. rejected. It's tainted to the core. I think it was the Oxford, uh, controversial Oxford professor of ethics, uh, Christian ethics, um, who, who once said, he said, more blood has been shed in the notion of moral idealism than anything else. And I think that kind of clings right. with that. Right, right. Is that when you have this perfect, this, this sense that if, if something has not been perfectly executed, therefore all the justification to do away with it is right, in place. Right. And I think this is sort of what um, Glenn is, is trying to say has created the confusion Right. And kind of the the kind of um... well, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I think what comes to my mind at this point is Augustine in the City of God, mm-hmm. right? City of Man, City of God. Yeah. So we take that perfection and we say, yeah, mm-hmm. it's there in the mm-hmm. City of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, you know, what we're talking about are efforts, uh, as we said in the last podcast, efforts to imminentize the eschaton, right? Yeah. To to make the kingdom of God. Yeah here, visible right here, this yeah. the utopian vision. Yeah, I was listening to Mark Bauerlein on the First Things podcast the other day, and he was interviewing, I can't remember the name of the guy, I'm, I'm embarrassed, but he's uh, the editor of the of Modern Age and the University Bookman. It's just escaping my but, but he was quoting, he was quoting uh, Kirk on this point, Russell Kirk. And Russell Kirk said, no, we can't have heaven on earth, but we sure can make a hell on earth if we, mm. if we want yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. You know, the interesting thing is you talked about tolerance. According to Augustine, tolerance is the principal virtue of the city of man, wow. the corrupt world, because in order for people to maintain power, they want to maintain peace. Mm. Yes. So if they can keep everybody from fighting with each other, mm. that's good for them, that's good for the powers that be, so therefore, we've got to promote tolerance. Good for Facebook. What's yeah. good for Facebook is good for That's America. Right. And, yeah. and, then, and then what you see with the more radical lines uh, that, that grow out of, of liberalism and, and deeper forms of the left is they, they exploit tolerance. So they, they kind of do this, this notion of, I create the conditions of tolerance so that you'll tolerate anything other than what you affirm. For example, yeah. if you're a Christian, you need right. to tolerate, practice Christian virtue of tolerance, and you need to tolerate X, Y, and Z. 
Right. And if you don't, you're intolerant. You're you're kind of going yeah. against your core essential value of right. being loving and accepting. Well, that's exactly what the mainline. That's is. That's exactly what goes. And then what that does is it allows for therefore, interestingly, and this is something Bonhoeffer hadn't seen, but it allows for this increase of a new intolerant kind of moral vision, which becomes that sort of you know whatever you want to call it, postmodern. We, we we've called it sure. a lot of different sure. things, political correctness in which you have a new moral high ground, grounded in, in nothing but thin air and a certain using Christian baggage of justice to, to carry its own weight. I mean, if, if virtue and ethics are all basically referent, referential to basically my subjectivity or my group subjectivity, there is no kind of compelling moral order that I can point to other right. than our own groups Right. tribal preferences. Right. So if that's the case, it becomes a will to power between either groups or individuals, and then we're right back at the, the need for government to come in if there's going to be any kind of um, order in society for competing right. power interests. Right. So, so and that plays right into the idea that everything is a power interest in the ultimate mm -hmm big gun in the power world is the government. government. Yeah. yeah, this is all kind of like a mm -hmm. You know, sort of like this uh, circular reasoning. It's just, you know. Yeah. Well, it, it takes you right back to totalitarianism and tyranny. Right. Right. It, it, the interesting thing here is, I, my, my argument is that all of this, at least within the Western tradition, mm -hmm. all of it is premised on moral relativism. Right. Mm -hmm. And the because that destroys liberty, which leads you to license, which leads you to tyranny and totalitarianism. The, the interesting thing about this is that if you talk to people, my students, about morality, the sort of general consensus is because people disagree about moral issues, there's no right or wrong here. Mm. Yeah. Now, the problem with that is I just saw an article in um, uh, online about a professor, I think he's in Georgia, not a professor, excuse me, a principal of a school, I think he's in Georgia who refuses to teach the Holocaust in his school because there were people who didn't believe in it. Yeah, I heard that. I don't want to offend their feelings. And, well, and, and who, who are we to say it happened if they don't think it did? Right. This right. is where this leads. This is, this is, I would argue, absolute insanity. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. But the other inside thing, our heads. Everything the, exists in our heads. The other part of it, though, is that, you know, the idea of moral relativity really comes from cultural relativity. You know, the fact that different cultures have right. different sets of values. Yeah. But if you read the appendix to The Abolition of Man, uh, C.S. Lewis, sure. he gives a rather lengthy list of ways in mm. which right. the degree of moral relativism across cultures can be greatly exaggerated. Well, I had this very experience. I was at a church down in um, Jersey City. So Jersey City is like essentially a borough of, of New York without the cachet and mm -hmm. cool factor. Mm -hmm. It has all the density, it has all the diversity and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, in this, I'm, I'm preaching in this church, uh, the church of my friend Sam Perez, and uh, Sam tells me afterward, every, every man in my church has read your book, Man of the House. And I was like, cool. And so there are Indians, there are Mexicans, mm -hmm. you know, there are people from, you know, just a wide range of cultures. And what it, and what it, what's the the response to the book? Overwhelmingly, that's a great thing you were talking about there. This whole sort of thing of the productive household—that's what my grandfather was all about. That was what, and this is like again and again and again. It doesn't matter what part of the world you're from; yeah. uh, they could relate to it. Yeah. Now, who are the people who can't relate to it? <laughs> people who live in Manhattan. Yeah, of course. White yeah. people in Manhattan yeah. don't want yeah. uh, this. The people. Coming from you know yeah. every corner of the earth can relate to the household code of, that Paul talks about. The only people who can't relate to the household code are the cool table people from Manhattan and Tim Keller's church. Yeah, well, I'll name names. We saw this. In, we saw this with the United Methodists and right. their, their votes. That you know a lot of right. the, what would can be considered third world and everything did not come down to agree with the the positions they took. And who they was it? Sufficiently diverse. Yeah, we'll name names. And, and someone who, in many ways, I've learned much from. But Will Williman came out and oh, made a very man. strong suggestion against them. And I think the response interestingly was, well, how dare this you know kind of person who is at the forefront of white western liberalism right. 
who claims to be so for the outsider and the marginalized shut their voices off as superstitious and backwatered. You know, I, I, kn I knew Will Willimon back in the day, as yeah. you know. Yeah. This is, that, when I heard that, it was tremendously disappointing at yeah. multiple levels, but it was also a contradiction of what I, I actually heard him say yeah. in person, yeah. in personal conversation, in a setting almost exactly like this. Yeah. Willimon has capitulated, yeah. completely capitulated to the left. Yeah, he has. And I think he's, this is a man who knows grace and yet has, has you know, has entered this sphere of the cool table yep. and wants to go out on a, on a high note. And yep. we're back to reinventing the flat tire, which I talked about last time. Yeah. You know, that we've made this mistake over and over and over again, and we never learn. And yeah. Willimon has written books on Bart. Yeah. Well, and I remember one time talking to Willimon. He was talking to me about, you know, the problem with liberals is they have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in yeah. the other, and they're yeah. leaning over to speak to the world, and they fall in. Yeah. Well, you know, Will, you have fallen in. Yeah. You are the, you are exactly what you condemned back in the 90s. Bible in one hand, MSNBC in the other. <laughs> so, the the what what I think we need to do now. This you know, getting getting to sort of the brass tacks here. I think what we need to do is to recover a robust idea of liberty, which means recovering a robust idea of virtue. Yep, mm -hmm. yep. And virtue necess you know, necessarily means that we live in a meaningful world. Right. Yeah. yeah. So what, what we have to do is, well, like the Barman Declaration, what we have to do is say, I'm sorry, you know, this is as far as we can go. I mean, and yeah. we can go no farther. This is it, because this is truth. You may okay. not like it. You may say that I'm bigoted, closed-minded, or anything else, but this is truth, and we need to stand on it. Right. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, it's Barlin, you know, Barman says it, and I think Luther said it similarly, here I stand. Yep. Um, now, I think there's another dimension to this. Mm -hmm. I think that martyrdom mm -hmm. is something, of course, we can, can admire and we can uh, praise. Uh, but we also need to remember the martyrs, and that's mm -hmm. one of the things that the church did. Yeah, we can't trust the world to remember the martyrs. That's right. They're going to forget them. Mm -hmm. This is where history. This is where your discipline, Glenn, mm -hmm. in terms of the church, is so critical to our, you know, long-term witness. Yeah. We have to remember the martyrs. Now we can, we can look at the middle, you know, the Middle Ages, and we can kind of criticize medieval church for all, you know all sorts of things you know, relics and so forth. But what, what, what were all those relics, you know, often related to? They were often related to the, the deaths of martyrs. You know, yeah. non sequitur here, tangent. I saw an article about a Lutheran church that was doing stuff with crystals and paganism and actually was doing liturgical dance to Ishtar. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is... San Francisco, it, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, this think is, is this is an insult yes. to every person who has given their lives for the faith. That's right. And this is why we have imprecatory psalms. You got it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, but I'm I'm sorry. I did, no, I don't no, that's a good thing to interject there. Yeah. So there, oh, there's a healthy Protestant affirmation of the cult. We could, we could call it the cult of the martyrs, but I, I really think that there is something to that. That there there is a a commemoration of the distinct drawing of limits, the joyous drawing of limits within a time at which it was a giving up all. It was, yeah. it was a radical act of self denial. One of the courses I had at Harvard was a, a course on fame. Believe it or not. <laughs> And it was it was a lot of fun. The TV and, show, <laughs> <laughs> or there was a movie, wasn't it? <laughs> and, and, and what we did in that one of the books we read is uh, was entitled. Uh, it was by a guy named Leo Brody, or Brody, and it was about uh, this whole matter of fame. And I'm trying to remember the the title, uh, you know, but it's escaping me. But uh, essentially, what what he was trying to to bring to the surface is that. You know, values and lives go together. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't just, you know, sort of have abstractions, yeah. you know, and sort of say this is something that we all should, you know, sort of live for without examples. Mm -hmm. So 
Now, of course, when we talk about values, we have all kinds of values, you know, Homeric values, you know, Stoic values, Epicurean values, whatever. So there are different stories that are told, hmm. but I think that, 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 that this whole idea of telling the stories of the martyrs addresses a lot of this stuff. That I, you know, the Lord essentially told us that, uh, okay, you're not supposed to like take over the world in a, in a military sense. Mm -hmm, that's, not the, that's not our strategy here. That's right. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not a place for that, or, or for military force sure. or martial arts or things mm -hmm. like that. But what, what he's saying is, is, is essentially that that's not how we're going to win. How are we going to win? We're going to win through a witness. Now, martyr, martus yep. in the Greek, is uh, you know bearing witness, but it also means dying, hmm. dying for what you witness to. Hmm. And if we forget the martyrs, if we just sort of like say, oh, that's a crazy Roman Catholic preoccupation. No. Yeah. You know, yeah, well, we've betrayed the martyrs, but we've also undermined the very, the very basis by which we hold the world accountable. And it also ignores the fundamental fact that we live by stories. Yes. Yeah. Right. Our world, our, our, our mental world is shaped by stories. And, and I, you know, kind of refer back to Karl Barth, who put a lot of emphasis on, on uh, witness and, and from the word martyr. He talked essentially as scripture is witness, John the Baptist is witness. But one yes. of his famous uh, images mm -hmm. was the Grunewald uh, altar, Gr is it Gr altar in which you have this emaciated Christ. But what do you have is John the Baptist's pointing finger. And he says, everything a Christian does is that pointing finger mm -hmm. of John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. It's a pointing away from itself. It's a death to the self and yeah. a pointing to the death of Christ. Yeah. And it's emaciated, you know, it's and an it, emaciated and it, state. It is that is a stark and and just gut-wrenching painting painting and and in that broken body you yet see the transcendence beauty goodness and yeah. truth of god and there is that that powerful you know protestant witness itself that in denying the self and death to the self and in, in, in martyrdom is the flip side the true freedom the true liberty we're all set goodness. i think but they're ready for checks yeah, yeah, I think I think you know one of the problems that we face today is that we've had a kind of a, uh, a, per, a perversion of of martyrdom, you know, with with regard to victim culture. Mm -hmm. So we we lost we lost a reference to transcendent values. Now everything is amenitized, mm -hmm. and now you know we basically compare each other with with each other. You know, how bad do you have it? Kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. Like there's yeah. this great Monty Python skit, you know this you know. <laughs> where they're talking about their childhoods, you know, and they're trying to one-up each other about mm -hmm. how bad their childhood was. Well, I grew up in a paper bag. <laughs> yeah. or, My or, father beat or, us every day. <laughs> or, or, or the BC. You had blank. Oh, we were so poor. We. <laughs> That's what we have now. So in inter intersectionality, it's all about mm -hmm. I... How much I, I have? That's right. I'm a bigger martyr than you. Yeah, yeah. But what are you, what are you a witness to? Yes. You're a witness to yourself. And you're suffering, and that's it. There's no pointing finger in that that altarpiece. It's, it's just it, pointing back, back at yourself. yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm actually going to read something now. This is from a great figure in literature, Captain America. Hey, oh, there hey you go. all right, at, Captain. Nothing, at, nothing now, finer. Well, yeah. Now, now, what I will say is that his writers got the origin of this wrong. Okay. But but at one point, no, Stan Lee got something wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he he didn't quite. You know, he he makes it too tied into the country. But, but listen, listen to this. Okay. The, the context is that Spider-Man is is in trouble, and you know people are accusing him of all kinds trouble. of things. And he comes to Captain America, and he says to Captain America, "How do you handle this?" And Captain America's response is, "Doesn't matter what the press says. Doesn't matter what the politicians or the mobs say." Doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something is wrong, that something wrong is something right. This nation was founded on one principle above all else, the requirement that we stand up for what we believe no matter the odds or the consequences. When the mob and the press and the whole world tells you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, then you have First Psalm there. That, you know, he's referring to kind of obliquely. But, yeah, uh, yeah, it's great. But but that's what we have to be willing to do. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is that we are typically far more concerned with being popular, being oh, nice, yeah. not being seen as mean, which in our culture means right. not disagreeing with people. Right, right. To stand for truth. Right, right. And that is the high road, as I've been arguing all through this, to totalitarianism and tyranny. <laughs> and unfortunately, some of the battles that we'll be fighting uh, for this are in our own churches. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it seems to be first and foremost that that it is within our churches, and, um, and and as those churches kind of participate and witness in the larger world, that they. Um, they're actually challenges that this material addresses. Right. Um, this is addressing the fact that there's so much compromise, there's a lot of theological ignorance, there's a lot of historical ignorance, and it's, it's not a criticism to people. I mean, most, most people don't have the time to study all these things, and, and right. so we in the fields of education need to... That's what the podcast is for. That's right, it's one of the avenues for doing that. But, but with that said, it doesn't mean that um, what our default position is when we we try to um, you know when we we there's a particular ethical issue or a particular social issue or a particular practice that we sort of just jump into our default mode rather than putting a question mark over it and saying wait a minute how much is this is shaped by the fact that I'm a participant in this culture how much of that is actually shaped by my participation in, in Christian faith and action. And I think that's where the big weight sits, is, is, you know, how much discipleship has kind of worked its way into all of our thoughts and actions um, so that we actually are witnessing in the right way rather than just merely accommodating the gospel to the picture that we've been formed into as participants in the society. Right. Yeah. Anyway, we should probably wrap up. We're getting kind of long here. Um, is there anything else you want to say, Glenn, as we close? Well, I think I've said quite enough. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anything else you got for us, uh, Tom? I think it's a great topic, and I, I think even revisiting the theme of liberty and freedom would be a real good one to, yeah, to kind yeah. of really do a lot of uh, work on. Right. Well, and I don't have anything else to say. So, anyway... Thank you very much for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your support. Uh, like I mentioned, I think I mentioned, uh, when we started our, our episode, uh, uh, please uh, you know, like us on whatever platform you listen. Give us five stars. Give us a thumb up, thumbs up, whatever you uh, have you know, the opportunity to, to do. And uh, thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.